Welcome to Scientist Soundwaves. I'm Ishtanetra Siva, and I will be your host for today. Active galactic nuclei, also known as AGN, is a small region in the center of our galaxy which is unusually luminous. Some of the radiation is attributed to non-stellar emissions, including radio, ultraviolet, X-ray, and gamma waves. AGN can also help in discovering various astronomical features and also relates to cosmological and galactic evolution. Galaxies with AGN within their center are known as active galaxies. Some examples of this are Seyfried galaxies and quasars. Today, we are eager to invite Professor Meg Uri, an Israel Munson Professor of Physics and Astronomy from Yale University. She was formerly the president of the American Astronomical Society and a former faculty member of the Hubble Space Telescope. In today's episode, Professor Uri will be sharing with us about active galactic nuclei and advocacy for women and minorities in STEM. Professor Uri's research is centralized around AGM, in particular, supermassive black holes. She's also a prominent figure in the advocacy for gender equality in STEM. Welcome to Scientist Soundwaves, Professor Uri. Thank you very much, delighted to be here. Um, so as we begin, the first question I'd like to ask is that one characteristic of AGN is that they are powerfully luminous. What is the reason for this luminosity? So uh, active galaxies have supermassive black holes at their center that are rapidly growing. They're growing by accreting matter from the surrounding galaxy that falls in and as it falls, it gains energy and that energy is converted ultimately to radiation. It's kind of like if you drop a, you know, if you drop an item that falls toward the floor, it gains kinetic energy. It's, trans it's transforming gravitational potential energy into movement. That's the way the physicists say it. So um, in the case of black hole growth, the matter falling in is losing gravitational potential energy and it's getting converted to either radiation or in some cases outflows and that energy is, um, the radiation is what we see. That was really interesting. And another question is, how exactly can AGN be used in understanding cosmological and galactic development and evolution? Yeah, so let me take each of those one at a time. So originally the idea, so active galaxies are some of the most luminous objects in the universe. And that means that they're visible to very, very large distances. And uh, initially people thought that made them ideal probes of cosmology because if you could see an object out to very large distances, you could measure, you could measure things about how the universe changed over those large distances, which is essentially what cosmology is trying to do, trying to measure the, the size and composition and structure of the universe. Um, I think some of the early promise was um, you know, not borne out because it turns out that uh, AGN have vastly different luminosities depending on, uh, I mean, they range over many orders of magnitude in luminosity. Luminosity means how much light they put out per unit time. And uh, because they have so many, there's such a wide range, they are not good standard candles. That's the term, if you, if you know, you know, how much, if, if there's a fixed amount of light being put out. For example, you know, when you change your light bulb, <laughs> you, you get a certain wattage of bulb and put it in and, and you know how bright that is. And if you knew what the wattage of the AGN was, you would be able to measure how bright it was. And from the, from the um, 
and, and then determine the distance. That's the, that's the key. And in many cases, we weren't good at predicting how luminous AGN were, so they weren't good standard candles. That said, some people have done some very clever things about using AGN as some kind of probe of distance. And um, I don't wanna say those are in vain. I, I think the jury is still out and whether that will work, but, but there are other better standard candles like um, supernovae from certain kinds of stars and so on that, that are so far winning that race and, and have been used to, to make very um, startling and important measurements about cosmology like the, you know, the fact that, that that most of the universe is made of this dark energy stuff that we didn't know about before uh, a couple of decades ago. Anyway, um, that's that's AGN for cosmology. In a funny sort of about face, right? AGN were maybe going to be great for cosmology and maybe haven't proved to be so critical. Originally, uh, at least when I was a kid, <laughs> they weren't thought to have too much um, importance for galaxies or galaxy evolution. Uh, it was thought, stupidly in retrospect, but it was thought that only a few galaxies had massive black holes in them, and those were the ones that we saw as AGN. And, you know, for other galaxies, black holes weren't that critical. And it turns out, again, something learned only two decades ago, that pretty much every galaxy has a uh, supermassive black hole in its center. Supermassive meaning millions to billions of times the mass of our sun, mass of a single star, in a black hole in the center of the galaxy. And if every galaxy has that, then they must all have gone through a phase where the AGM was present because where the, the, the black hole was actively accreting because they weren't born at these high masses. They had to grow by accreting matter. And that means that, again, as we discussed, as the black hole is growing, energy is going out into the galaxy. And the total energy deposited into the gap, or at least emitted as the black hole is growing, is this of the same magnitude as the gravitational binding energy of the galaxy. In other words, in principle, it's enough to blow the galaxy apart. Now, as it turns out, the uh, energy emitted doesn't couple so well to the galaxy that the galaxy gets destroyed. But the point is there's a lot of energy. And so people started realizing that black hole growth could have a profound impact on its host galaxy. Um, we're still trying to figure out exactly how that works. Um, uh, it's, it's not as simple as originally thought, I think. Uh, when we look at active galaxies and study their host galaxies, which is something my group is doing. In fact, we're doing it um, in some cases using uh, machine learning techniques to um, try to process large numbers of images. We don't see strong evidence for the impact of the AGN on the host galaxy. And there are many reasons for that, but this answer is already too long, so I won't, I won't go into all the details. So it's an active area of research and we're still trying to understand exactly how the black hole growth impacts the galaxy. And, and I would say just all we know is that it must have some impact um, in order for our universe to end up looking like it looks today compared to what it would look like without the black hole. Growth. Thank you, Professor. That was a really great insight into cosmology and also into the current research areas right now. 
Um, what are some of the key primary features of AGN? And if possible, how can these features be used to locate AGN? Yeah, so um, uh, they, I have a kind of cartoon in my mind. So a black hole at the center and material falling onto the black hole will naturally, because of the laws of physics, uh, form into a, well, it's called an accretion disk, a disk around the black hole uh, where matter is sort of, it's like in, you know, it's on deck to fall in, but it hasn't yet uh, accreted. And the reason for that, by the way, is just the conservation of angular momentum, that um, there is a net angular momentum to the system and all the other motions can be, can be reduced by collisions, but the, but the rotational motion around the black hole cannot. So that's why a disk forms. Anyway, there's an accretion disk, oh, that's too much detail, a black hole, there are some clouds of gas around that emit uh, atomic line emission that we can observe and measure things about the AGN. Uh, it's a very important probe. There's also uh, gas and dust, some in clouds that are blocking the line of sight and sometimes uh, in, from some directions not blocking the line of sight. So all of those things we've learned are ingredients that go into the, you know, that are, sorry, not go into, but that uh, form naturally around these very massive black holes. And in some cases, we also see very powerful radio jets emanating from near the black hole and traveling sometimes millions of light years uh, in a highly collimated stream uh, out from this, uh, two highly collimated streams out from the center of the, of the AGN. And since we're on the topic of the features of AGN, I read that they can be split into two classes based on the conditions of the astrophysical jets, radio loud and radio quiet. Professor Uri, how do they differ and what are some examples of each? Yeah, so it's defined observationally, literally by a ratio of how much radio emission is coming out versus how much optical emission is coming out. But in practice, what we think is happening is that in some cases, the jets are very powerful and, um, and they punch through the galaxy and form these large scale structures that then emit a huge amount of radio emission. Um, my own idea, and, and I, again, I think this is an area we don't know enough about, but my own idea is that every black hole, I, I think these black holes are very similar. First of all, black holes are very simple. They have mass and spin and, and that's kind of about it. So they can't, you know, they're not fancy machines that could make, you know, that could make jets or not make jets. They, I think they all have to be making jets. But what I think is happening is that the jets have a spectrum of powers. In other words, most jets are, are created, are fairly weak. And only a few rare ones are very powerful. Also, they're born in different galaxies. Some galaxies have very little gas. Some galaxies have a lot of gas. So it's the competition. I think we do know it's the competition between the power of the jet and the amount of interstellar material that it has to punch through in order to get out into the, you know, into uh, to become a very large radio source. So those two things determine whether or not something becomes radio loud. And the rarity of powerful jets and the ubiquity of a lot of you know, interstellar material means that very few cases, in very few cases, do we have these very large, powerful radio structures that are fed by the secretion of the black hole. But, um, uh, but uh, I think it remains to be seen if there's actually a dichotomy 
for, for so many years, we've talked about it as if there are two classes and they're fundamentally different somehow. And yet when you look at their properties, they're sort of continuous. The amount of radio emission relative to optical emission is not, it's, it doesn't, to me, look bimodal. It looks sort of continuous. And I think we'll find that uh, that uh, black holes just know how to make jets, period. And, they, and relativistic jets, these are jets that are expanding uh, outward at the speed of light or nearly the speed of light. Thank you, Professor Uri. AGN are really fascinating. I understand that you're also a prominent figure in the field of advocacy for women and minorities in STEM. According to you, has there ever been a specific turning point in history for women in STEM and science? So, um, sure, yeah. I, I mean, I think things have been getting better for women in STEM uh, gradually over, over quite a, over a century or more. Um, but I think there are punctuated moments when big change happens. And frankly, it's related to laws, basically. You know, 100 years ago, just over 100 years ago, uh, women in the United States got the right to vote. And, uh, and, law, and after they got the right to vote, issues important to women became more prominent. And so there are laws that, that guarantee um, equal treatment. Uh, in the US, these are uh, Title IX, uh, Title VII. Um, they, they make it against the law to discriminate on the basis of gender. Um, we also have the Equal Rights Amendment, uh, passed after our Civil War, again, 150, some 160 years ago. And all of those things uh, make a lot of uh, difference. We had, um, we had an Equal Rights Amendment. We have an Equal Rights Amendment, which um, had a deadline to be passed uh, in, the 19, uh, in the 1970s and didn't make it. And the Equal Rights Amendment was a very simple statement that discrimination on the basis of um, sex was not, uh, not permitted. And um, it's kind of shocking to me. I mean, I lived through that time. It's kind of shocking to me how opposed people were to that kind of equality um, and still are. Uh, there's a great uh, television show um, about that time called Mrs. America. What was that on Showtime? I've actually forgotten where it was. But anyway, it, it reminded me of how much opposition there was to the idea of women's equality. Um, that said, I think we've made a lot of progress. In some fields, women are uh, at parity with men at certain times. For example, in undergraduate uh, and PhD level, women are getting uh, as many degrees in, in the biological sciences as men. But in some fields, like my own field of physics, we still lag far behind in, in certain parts of engineering. We, we, we are at 20% of the total, which is just crazy. You know, um, and also people of color are at very low numbers compared to their, uh, you know, the presence in the pool of talent. And so what's, what's um, yeah, so we have a long way to go. I don't wanna, you know, we're far from parity. But, but we have made progress, I would say that. So I, actually I would say vote, like the most important thing anybody can do is to vote because if you don't make your voice heard in the corridors of power, better still run for election and then you know, vote in the House of Congress or in your local government, whatever it may be. 
Um, if you do that, you can actually really uh, help make change. Certainly, Professor Uri. And a final question. On an individual and societal level, are there any potential steps that we can take to encourage more women into pursuing STEM? Yeah, that's a really good question. You know, I think um, our choices are shaped uh, from childhood are shaped by our families, our communities, and, and the visible world around us. I grew up in a time when there were no women in leadership anywhere. Uh, they weren't in government, they weren't in, you know, in the, in the courts. Um, and that has certainly changed. We now have, you know, women in prominent positions of power in many places. And so I think that helps young people grow up with the idea that they too can aspire to any, any career or, or activity that they are interested in. What troubles me is, is that I see lots of young women super excited about science and, uh, and you know, very motivated to do great things. And they get, um, they get discouraged, they get undermined, um, I, I think it's very clear that in, well, it depends on where you are, actually. One of the most interesting things for me, sorry to digress, but um, in 2002, I uh, led the US delegation to the first international conference on women in physics. And about a hundred some countries were present and we compared numbers from one country to the next, numbers of uh, percentages of physicists who are women. And there's vast, vast differences. It tells you many things, but instantly it tells you that the presence of or absence of women in science has nothing to do with ability, physiology, whatever. It has everything to do with culture and expectation. And in the world to come, you know, ahead of us, uh, the key challenges are all related to science, technology, engineering, mathematics. STEM workers are vital to the future of the world. And if we close off some large fraction of that talent because they're female, because they're people of color, because there was some marginalized group in their, in their society, we have basically dumbed down the profession uh, in a way that we just can't afford to do. So, so changing our outlooks, you know, it depends on who I'm talking to when I say this. If I'm talking to students, I would tell them to, that they should demand the right to do STEM if that's what they want to do. If I'm talking to parents, I'll say, you know, encourage your children to do what they're interested in, regardless of their, of whether they look like the people who are already there or not. Um, I think we all have a responsibility to uh, to keep the doors open for wherever uh, people want to go. The, the, the ideal world is one in which people are thriving by doing the thing they want to do, the thing they're good at, um, without false imposition of, you know, who should be doing this or who should be doing that. 
Thank you so much, Professor Uri. Those were really inspiring words. And thank you so much for joining us on our podcast episode today. It's been so fantastic having you on our show. If you would like to ask us a question about today's podcast or would like to offer your expertise and join us as a guest speaker, please email us at the link in the description box. Thank you for supporting our podcast and we hope you've enjoyed listening to today's session. Stay safe and see you soon.